always fun to hear something come back, say good morning to the screen, and it's just not, it's just not quite the same. Thank you all for joining us online, though. It's still a pleasure. Uh, my name's Dave Werns. I'm the Director of Missions and Mobilization here at Grace Fellowship, and it is my honor to pick up in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the series we've been in for several weeks now. We're going to be touching in, in Chapter 5. Uh, verse 33 and, and on to the end. And so if you have your Bible with you, I hope you do. If you have an app, scroll on uh, down to, to Luke chapter 5. And while you're getting there, I'm going to zoom out just a little bit so that we can get our bearings and, and we can see where this conversation fits in with the rest and, and totality of Jesus's ministry at large. So we're nearing the end of Jesus's first year in public ministry. And and even though he's made it abundantly clear that his plan does not include some meteoric rise in fame, he is gaining notoriety, right? So he is a, a teacher with an unusual amount of authority, but more than that, stories of his miraculous healings are starting to spread around the region. So it's no surprise that multitudes, crowds of people are finding him consistently and following him around. And as his reputation grows, as his teachings become more and more popular, it's becoming painfully obvious that there are discrepancies between his teachings and the teachings of the the prominent leaders in the Jewish community, particularly the Pharisees. So Jesus establishes a a base camp in a a region near his hometown of Nazareth. It's sort of a a hillbilly region. Uh, It's called Galilee. And he's traveling around between villages and towns, preaching, teaching, calling his disciples. And there is one primary theme to all of his teaching. One primary message that he actually picked up, carried the baton from his cousin John the Baptist, and he is now preaching, repent. The kingdom of heaven The kingdom of God is here. It's accessible to you. And that's where we join in the story, chapter 5. Let's let's pick it up, actually, in verse 27. Let's get some context. Read with me, Luke 5, 27. And after this, he, that's Jesus, went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. Him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and other, others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And they said to him, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment if he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the old will not match, piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it'll be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Now, there's a, a lot to unpack here. So if you would, join with me 
Let's ask God for help in understanding and applying his word today. Father God, we are, we are so grateful that you have spoken to us through your word, through your spirit. And we ask that you would enable us today, empower us today through your Holy Spirit to hear it and be changed by it. Not just to be hearers of your word, but to be doers also. Thank you that you have given us the grace to be obedient and faithful. Thank you, God, for your word and your spirit. Amen. Now, this particular conversation between Jesus and and the Pharisees is extremely important for understanding not just Jesus' ministry in total, but but why exactly it grates against the Pharisees in particular. At first glance, it looks like they're just two factions that are, that are kind of jabbing a little bit about the who, what, when, and where of eating and drinking. And it is that, but, but in reality, it's a crossroads, right? We are seeing in this text a, a collision of worldviews, right? This is, it may not look like Thunderdome, but the rules here still apply, right? One man enters, sorry, two men enter, one man leaves. These two incompatible paradigms Only one of them can persist. And eventually, the Pharisees will go into self-preservation mode. They're going to dig in. They're going to start to plot against Jesus. And eventually, they'll sanction his murder. And these parables that Jesus gives the Pharisees in our text, they have major implications for us today. But, But in order for us to really feel the weight of those implications, I think we need to unpack the worldview of the Pharisees just a little bit, to dig in and see where are they coming from. For those of us that have been around the church a little while, we have this picture, a mental image, that the Pharisees are a stereotypical bad guy. Right? They have like the black hats and the black gloves and the little pencil mustache. <laughs> full curses, full again. Uh, that's a funny image, I guess, if you're on a flannel graph, but, but it's really unhelpful when we're trying to understand what Jesus was trying to correct in their lives. Because most of us have almost nothing in common with Mr. Pencil Mustache, <laughs> evil chuckle guy. But we have a ton in common with the Pharisees and how they saw the world. So whenever I'm helping a new believer or, or somebody that's struggling in, in reading the scripture, uh, get into and dig into the word of God, one of the exercises that we recommend is that you find yourself in the story, right? You try to see who in this story thinks and relates to God or other people in a way similar to me. I hate to say this, but when I'm doing that exercise, the people that I most commonly connect with are the Pharisees. I see the world, I see God, most similar to how they do. I don't think I'm alone in that. And let me me explain what I mean by that. See, the Pharisees were God-fearing Jewish men. They devoted their lives to steering the nation of Israel back to God. These guys were preaching repentance before preaching repentance was cool. We don't see that in the text, but only because we're coming in really late in the story. These folks had two major goals in mind, right? The first goal of of the Pharisees was to preserve a people of God, holy and separate from the world. And their second goal was to prepare those people for the inevitable coming of the Messiah. And they were relentless in these goals, right? The surprising thing is they were actually pretty successful. They helped redefine 
Jewish worship as an expression of everyday life instead of just a series of, of ceremonies or, or sacrifices. Right? They encouraged people to see their entire life as worship to God and to focus on faithfulness and holiness as they lived outside of the temple. They made the word of God more accessible by placing uh, the role of the rabbi in the synagogue almost on par with the role of the priest in the temple. And since literacy in that day was relatively low, they encouraged and promoted the public reading of God's holy word so that people could be consistent and faithful even if they couldn't read the scripture themselves. They helped make holy living and faithfulness a little more practical and accessible by breaking down God's laws into uh, understood, easily applied rules for everyday life that any Jewish person could understand and apply. A Jew in in Jesus' day would never have to wonder if they were being pleasing to God because God's expectations were, were carefully spelled out in great detail by the Pharisees. And not only did they help Jewish people live out faith in their own personal lives, but they also wrestled and fought against the Jewish or against the the Roman rulers on behalf of Jewish citizens. Right? The, The people in Israel were conquered and ruled by the Romans, but the Pharisees helped to fight for political and religious freedoms. Above all, right, they worked diligently to be a public example of what God expected from his people and the blessings that can come from a faithful life. I don't know about you, all that sounds pretty good. In fact, it sounds remarkably similar to what so many churches and Christians are doing right now, today, 2021. Who doesn't want to be an example of what God wants from people? Who doesn't want to be an example of of hope and, and waiting expectantly for a Messiah to come. But for all the good that the Pharisees did, they they actually were making matters so much worse. See, by reducing God's law down into a manageable, tangible proportion, they're actually undercutting what God's intent was for giving the law in the first place. And by giving the oral traditions and and interpretations of the rabbis the same weight and emphasis that that they put on God's word and God's law, they were actually removing God as the final authority in people's lives. And by setting themselves up as examples of faithfulness and holy life, they're actually setting themselves up for an inevitable decline into self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And obviously none of that happened overnight. It's a slow drift that takes centuries. But these lofty goals of preserving God's people as holy and separate and preparing them for a promised Messiah, both of them gradually degraded into simply preserving a unique religious culture and then preparing them for a possible political revolution. Somewhere along the way, God's law took a back seat. And became less and less about being acceptable and, and pleasing to God as a, as a person and individual and as a nation. It became more and more about an orderly and consistent society. The Pharisees themselves became infatuated with their watered-down version of a manageable law from God. They stopped teaching who God really is. 
And these fervent champions of God's holy law shriveled up and became petty, greedy businessmen selling sin management systems to a broken and oppressed people. So by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, Jewish life is is largely governed by these sin management systems, by the regulations and the traditions that the Pharisees invented, controlled, oversaw. And because they oversaw these traditions, the Pharisees had risen to positions of influence in almost every circle of public life and enjoyed the wealth and privileges that come with those positions of power. But it's those very systems of self-management, those traditions that the Pharisees had, had instituted and the people had embraced that Jesus was threatening with his disruptive teachings. And it's from those systems of, of sin management and traditions of men that Jesus was calling people to repent. Look back in Luke chapter 5. Look at verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Skip down to verse 33. And he said, Jesus said, to, or he, they said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and, and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, these questions show that the Pharisees don't really understand what Jesus was coming to do, but, but that's understandable, right? I mean, at this point in Jesus' life, I don't know that anybody really understood why he came or what he was up to. We're still about four chapters away from, from Peter proclaiming Jesus is the Christ, so it's understandable that they missed it. But, but that second statement in verse 33, the one about fasting, that statement shows the Pharisees didn't really understand what they were teaching either. You see, in the law of God that he gave down to Moses, the, the Jews are only required to fast one day every year. It's the Day of Atonement. It's a very special day, and and it's the day that the high priest would offer a special sacrifice on behalf of the the sins of the whole nation so that God would allow them all to live another year instead of just wiping them out for their their cumulative sin. Everybody, the entire nation, would fast to show how brokenhearted they are about their part in the national sin problem. Fasting was designed to be a physical representation of of an inward broken heart. Your sorrow over your sin and the sin that's so evident in the world around you. It should remind you of your need for God's mercy. It should remind you of your dependence on his kindness. That entire day, the entire day of atonement, the the priest, the, the sacrifice, the blood, all of it, the fasting... It was supposed to solidify in people's minds. It was supposed to to concrete in their lives that there is an urgent and pervasive need to deal with your sin. The fasting in particular was meant to stoke a longing for God's eventual salvation. The Messiah will come. It's a very detailed metaphor. Uh, I trust that you guys will look into it. Very detailed about Jesus himself. And Jesus knows who he's talking to, right? He knows that the Pharisees know all of this. That's why he contrasts this solemn, somber mood of of, of fasting with a celebratory atmosphere, right? A multi-day festival that the Jewish people would throw for a wedding. 
And by comparing himself to the bridegroom, he's saying in no uncertain terms, he is the one they've been waiting for. He is the one they've been longing for, fasting for all of these centuries. Right? The time of preparation is over. The time of celebration is come. We, we are in the kingdom. It's here now. Things are different. He's not condemning them for fasting. But Jesus even says, like, there will be another time where people will fast. My people will fast. It's just not right now. Right now is the time to celebrate. He's inviting the Pharisees to change their paradigm. He's calling them to repent. The kingdom of heaven is is here. You can't fast while the bridegroom is here. You and I tend to hear the word repent most often in the context of turning away from sin. We talk about that pretty frequently. And it definitely is one aspect to repentance, right? The turning away from from willful sin and rebellion. John the baptizer is, is particularly interested in that as he's preaching a repentance of forgiveness of sin. But the original language is here. When Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it suggests that there, there might be another way to obey that command. The Greek term metanoia is often translated repent. And it means to change what you think. It's a compound word. Meta is beyond and nuos is mind. And so it, it literally means beyond your thinking, beyond your thoughts. We would, we would say maybe like thinking outside the box. And this kind of repentance that that metanoia implies, it's more than just switching between two equally good options. I changed my mind. I like going to Kroger for a salad and coming out with ice cream instead. Right? Oh, well, iceberg, ice cream, it's similar. I changed my mind. It's basically the same. Metanoia isn't really even changing a course of action based on new information. Although that both are a form of repentance, right? It's like guac shock at Chipotle. If you guys are unfamiliar with guac shock, that's when you go to a Chipotle that you don't know any of the employees, and which I would highly recommend avoiding if possible, but that's a different sermon. They kindly inform you that it'll be an extra $2 to put guacamole on your burrito bowl, and you abruptly change your mind. Right? Again, these are, these are forms of repentance. You repent from salad. You repent from... Guac. But it's not really, it's not really metanoia. Right? That's not really the change, the paradigm shift that Jesus is referencing. It's fundamentally changing what you think about. Right? It's relearning how to think. This kind of repentance is like Neo waking up from the Matrix. This is like Truman Burbank exiting stage of the Truman Show. This is like Lucy walking out of the wardrobe and into a magical world full of lions and witches, talking animals. It's a new way of thinking. Maybe some examples from our world will help. Do you guys remember when we had nine planets in our solar system? Some of you guys are familiar, right? That's when we had Pluto. 
Some, somebody somewhere just decided that Pluto no longer meets the requirements to be a planet, and now we're down to eight. Right? And there were some changes, mostly to posters and, and some science fair projects, but, but let's be honest, it was no metanoia there. None of us repented from a, a Pluto life, drastically changed the way we see the world. We just kind of muddled on with eight planets. Maybe to get a little more real, right? Consider the difference between somebody giving you $100 and somebody giving you $100 million. Now, for most of us, I think $100 fits very neatly into our existing worldviews. We know basically what costs about $100. We know more or less where $100 would be useful, responsible, helpful, most fun, We know how to be faithful with $100. I don't know about you, but $100 million would simply overwhelm my existing worldviews. I would need a metanoia experience to be faithful with that kind of wealth. Maybe even another layer more real. About seven months ago, my daughter was born. Talk about a a world-changing experience, right? Sure, I I have to think about my calendar differently, my finances differently, my health, all of the things that that go on in my day a little differently. But but really, the metanoia here, right, the new way of thinking here is having to learn about things that I never even knew existed previously, right? The the toys, the, the apps, the techniques, the accessories, the opportunities, that are afforded, and all of them constantly being updated. It's nonstop. It's exhausting. Most days, I feel like I can barely keep up, and she's not even really crawling yet. But it's also an exciting and exhilarating new world that Andrea and I get to explore together. And this is the same kind of invitation that Jesus is making to the Pharisees and the scribes and the disciples of John the Baptist when he says, you need to repent. And so he tells them these parables. And so we read these parables because we need to repent. Because we need a metanoia. Bottom line, our repentance cannot be merely changed behavior. It must be more than that. True metanoia is more than just honestly admitting that you've been wrong and then humbly committing to do differently. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Right? All repentance will absolutely, certainly involve behavior changes. But it must be more than that. It has to be more than just, I used to speak harshly with my wife and my kids, and now I don't. I used to look at porn, and now I don't. I used to fudge my taxes. I used to lie to my customers. I used to, you fill in the blank. True repentance. True repentance begins by humbly acknowledging your worldview is woefully inadequate to fully embrace what God is really up to in the world and in your life. Sin promises freedom and unlimited opportunities. 
In reality, it just shrinks everything down until the only thing real in your world is you. And it fits perfectly. It's just too small for God. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, is an an intimate yet ever-expanding experience with an infinite God. And as we'll see in a few minutes, it cannot be reduced or contained by human systems or traditions. The Pharisees literally could not imagine a faithful man not fasting because the celebratory nature of God's eternal kingdom just couldn't fit into their world. Let's not make the same mistake as they did. Romans chapter 12. You can turn there if you want. Keep a finger in Luke. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul describes what repentance can look like. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed anymore to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word renewal in verse 2. That word renewal has many of the same connotations as the word repent in Luke chapter 5. Friends, I'll be as blunt as I can. Our regular intake of scripture is not optional or supplemental. Our regular intake of scripture is necessary and essential for our lives. But it must, must must be changing the way we think. Or else we will become just like the Pharisees, rejecting God's kingdom in favor of our own familiar management systems. Folks, if we are attempting the transformation from Romans 2 without the renewal from Romans 12 2, we will miss the repentance from Luke 5 by as wide a margin as the Pharisees did. I'll say that again. If we are attempting the transformation from Romans 12, verse 2, without the renewing of our minds from Romans 12, we will miss the repentance from Luke chapter 5 by as wide a margin as the Pharisees did. Folks, this is so important. Jesus is about to launch into some of the most transformational, kingdom-focused teachings in his entire ministry. And if we go into it, assuming that our worldviews can stay the same, friends, we will miss it. Please do not go into these teachings assuming that you and God basically agree about most things that matter. This is the warning. That's in the next two parables. This is the warning that God gives the Pharisees with the parables of the garments and the wine. He's showing them the scope and scale of their problem, of our problem. He's telling them that their fasting conundrum is really just the tip of the iceberg. 
First, Jesus tells them that repentance means abandoning their old ways of thinking. All right, look at verse 36. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Just to be clear, Jesus is not talking about replacing God's law with an, a newer, better version. Right? He's very clear in all of his teaching that he came to fulfill God's perfect law. Not to tear it down, not to replace it, not to modify it. God's law is perfect and unchanging. So, if it's not the law being replaced, what is Jesus actually talking about? To be fair, there are a variety of interpretations available. But if we assume that Jesus is sticking with the message of repent because the kingdom of God is here, then the garment being replaced is probably those systems and traditions and regulations that the Pharisees had offered the Jewish people to manage their sin. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, offers a permanent solution to our sin problem. Right through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. It would be absurd to try and use God's plan for saving the world as a patch on a man-made system of sin management. It just doesn't fit. And it it guts the gospel of any of its life-changing power. But if we're honest, you and I are tempted to do the very same thing. Right? We want to take the identity that Jesus offers in this new kingdom of his, the certainty of our salvation, the the joy of becoming more like him through our circumstances over time, the, the glorious truths that God has revealed through the life of Christ. And we want to take all that Jesus offers by saying the kingdom of God is available, and we want to reduce it down to a manageable checklist. And then we have the audacity to congratulate ourselves on not being these self-righteous hypocrites like the Pharisees because our list is more gospel-centered than theirs. Friends, we cannot stop trying to believe the gospel in pieces and patches. We all have old ways of thinking and relating to God, to our salvation, to our role in the world, to the people around us. But repentance means changing the way you think, right? It means going beyond what you currently think. My pride would have me believe that I have things mostly figured out. I just need a little bit of tweaking. I just need to tighten up a little bit, mean it more. But God and I basically agree on how the world works. I just need some fine-tuning. The Bible tells me I have a lot more repenting to do. Again, I'll be as direct as I can. What about you? When was the last time you were wrong about something that really mattered and had to change your thinking? When was the last time you approached the scriptures expecting your mind to be changed? When was the last time you let it change what you thought about? 
Folks, the Pharisees were smarter, more devout, and had a lot more to lose than most of us. And they got it way wrong. Can we all just agree to assume that that we need to go beyond our thinking at least as much as they did? But repentance isn't just about rejecting old ways of thinking. Jesus offers an entirely new way of thinking that we also need to embrace. Look at verse 37 and 38. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, it'll be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, for those of you who aren't in the habit of transporting your alcohol in the carcasses of dead animals, let me explain what Jesus is talking about a little bit, right? So in his day, usually, wine would still be fermenting, right, as it's being pressed, and you would pour it into, quite literally, the skin of a dead animal, usually a goat. As it ferments, gases are released, and that skin stretches, Unfortunately, that stretching is kind of a one-and-done deal. There were some techniques that that could recover some of the wineskins, but frankly, it was just safer to use a new one. Because like Jesus said, if if the skin doesn't stretch enough, right, you're going to lose both the wine and the skins, which would be a costly investment. Simply put, the regulations, the systems, the, the control measurements that the Pharisees were putting in place could never accommodate what God was planning to do in the world. Right? To a degree, they did succeed in making the world manageable, in making it predictable, relatively safe. But it was just so tiny. It had no stretch left. See, the Pharisees were having trouble making room for people like tax collectors. Right? What on earth would they do When the kingdom of heaven sent invitations to the entire world. The Pharisees were working so hard to make sure everybody knew if they fit into the temple of God. Do you qualify? Are you good enough? What could they possibly do when God made every believer a temple of God by making his home inside of them? Let me be clear. The Pharisees would have done everything in their considerable power to keep every one of you out. Jesus did everything in his vast power to make sure you had a place in his family and to bring you in. I'm confident he's still doing that. I'm also confident there will be a time where Jesus uses his considerable power to do something in this world that makes you incredibly uncomfortable. That he will extend an invitation to someone that you would rather he didn't. Friends, the kingdom of God cannot be contained by human preferences and traditions. It's not surprising that the Pharisees struggled with this, right? They had a lot to lose. 
Those traditions gave them influence. It gave them purpose. It gave them status and credibility. And in some ways, I really think that putting off the old is easier than embracing something new. Learning something new, particularly learning new ways to think, can be exhausting, humiliating, sometimes expensive and scary. And that's why no one who drinks the old desires the new. The old is good. But it's not enough. And it's not what Jesus is doing. That's the end of his parable, but, but I don't think it's the end of the story. See, after this interaction with the Pharisees, they become more and more hostile towards Jesus. And they will eventually join a conspiracy to see him murdered. I think that is the inevitable end for anyone who will not repent. The increasing hostility followed by an eternal separation. Repentance isn't optional. Two worldviews enter. One worldview leaves. It's too late for the Pharisees. But you and I can still repent. You and I can still embrace the new wine of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is talking to us today. Now, right now. This is Jesus making an invitation to repent because the kingdom of heaven is available to us now. It's here and changing how we think is the new normal. Repentance is not an annual event for us. It's not even a weekly event for us. Repentance for us is a daily, moment-by-moment experience where we get to have our minds renewed. Changed into his mind. Yes, it is exhausting. Yes, it is expensive and humiliating. It means admitting that we don't have it all figured out. That we are not experts. That we are likely wrong in ways that we haven't even discovered yet. But it means being okay not knowing what comes next. It means being okay being misunderstood probably misspeaking and needing to ask forgiveness from one another and so many more. But it's also a new and exhilarating world that Jesus is inviting us to experience with him. Friends, this kingdom of God will not stay inside of a safe, comfortable, and predictable life. I don't know about you, but I've never actually been that good at making my life safe and predictable. I've never been particularly successful at managing my own sin either. But today's a new day. Today is a good day to repent. Today, the kingdom of God is available. And we can change how we think Would you pray with me and ask him for his help in repenting? Father, we are so in need. We need your Holy Spirit 
We need your holy scripture, and we need your divine power. Thank you that you've offered it free of cost. Would you put repentance into our hearts and minds? I thank you that you've invited us into your kingdom and into your family. Help us, God. We need you. Amen.